This is Trainer Talk, presented by Fasig Tipton on the Horse Racing Radio, Horse Network. Racing Radio Network. Trainer Todd Fletcher has reached the stratosphere. It was all have another for Doug O'Neill. Moon over Miami for Bill Mott. 3,000 for trainer Mark Cassie. Trainer D-Way Lucas, a six win. And Bob Baffert with another incredible milestone. But it was all for Scott McGee. Win number 1,000 for the great Trevor McCarthy. Here's 2,000 for Nick Zito. Steve Asperson is now North America's all-time leading trainer. Now, here's Mike Penna. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Trainer Talk presented by Fasig Tipton. This, of course, is the show trainers listen to, and you are listening right here on the Horse Racing Radio Network. Mike Penna, Baron of the Backstretch, as always, happy to have you along for the ride for the next hour on Sirius 162 XM 207, streaming worldwide at horseracingradio.net and available anywhere you get your podcasts each and every week. My guest on today's show wrapped up a 20-year training career on Saturday night at Turfway Park. His final starter, Lieutenant Kitty, marked career starter number 3,929. His runners found their way to the winner's circle 553 times and earned nearly $16 million in purses. Over the past two decades, he's approached his profession with a singular philosophy. If you take care of the horses, the horses will take care of you. Now the 55-year-old native of Evansville, Indiana, plans to apply that same approach to his new chapter, serving as executive director of the Indiana Horsemen's Benevolent and Protective Association, a role which he officially begins tomorrow, February 1st. Please join me in welcoming now retired trainer Tim Gleishaw, back to Trainer Talk, presented by Fasic Tipton. Tim, appreciate the visit, my friend. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, and congrats on a, a really fantastic career. You know, I guess it's somewhat fitting that your career wraps up at the track where you celebrated the first of those 553 career victories. Yeah, it was it was becoming a little uh, bit annoying. Uh, I, I was telling people about a couple months ago I hadn't won a race at Turfway Park since they ran in September, the uh, September meet there because we were 0 for last winter. You know, that was our first winter we stayed in Kentucky, and then this this year, uh, as of about two weeks ago, I hadn't won a race either. Then Chambers Bay won, and then of course Leo on the you know on the night of my last uh, my last night. So on Saturday. So, um, but yes, I had my first winner there ever with Anne's emblem. She had I think six seconds before she ever won a race. Um, but uh, I believe Calvin Burrell was on her. That was a long, long time ago. I'm glad that you did get to celebrate a win on the final evening of your training career, how much did you want to win with Lieutenant Kitty to, to go out on top? Well, that would have meant, uh, it meant a lot winning our race period and winning for Iron Horse. Obviously they were, uh, the Bucero owners and a uh, big part of my stable. Uh, but David and Lauren Osborne, Deerfield farm have been the owners that have been with me the longest. So, you know, it would have been a tall task. She was, you know, 30, I don't know what she went off at, but she was 30 to one morning line. We had a couple scratches. Maybe that came down a little bit. Um, so that would have been very, very, very special. But ultimately, like, uh, Lauren said to me after the race, that's horse racing. I had a win and a last on my final, final (laughs) night. And that's about the way it usually is. I remember those years working for, 
as an assistant for both uh, Bob Holtis, who had a lot of really nice horses, and Cole Norman. And though Cole ran more than Bob, there were a few times at Oaklawn that we'd have five or six in for Bob, and all of them would be, I'd let's say, nine to two or under. Same with Cole. We might be in every race, nine to two, five to one or under, and you think you're going to have an absolutely huge day, win four or five races, and it never happens like that. You win one, have a couple seconds, and a couple of them finish you know, way back. So she was right about that. That was pretty fitting because that's the way things go in horse racing most of the time, you know, as a trainer and owner. Yeah, you you mentioned the name Bucaro, who we're going to talk about in depth later in the program here. Of course, you trained Bucaro, a multiple greatest stakes winner, uh, about 10 years ago or so. It's hard to believe it's been 10 years since Bucaro, but it it has. Um, We'll talk more about that. Um, But let's let's focus on you for for a little bit longer here. Uh, Why was this the right time, Tim, to make this decision and, and move on? Well, I, I'll be honest with you. A lot of it, well, number number one, the job was open. Uh, but also, timing-wise for me, it couldn't have been more perfect because uh, um, a few reasons. A uh, big owner of mine, my other graded stakes winner, uh, Buller Jolly, was owned by Wayne Spaulding and one of his buddies, Farron McCovens. And Wayne was good for giving me uh, between eight and ten two-year-olds a year. And he died a couple of years ago of cancer, and he's my age. Mm. Um, then Iron Horse, uh, that we mentioned because of Bucaro, they obviously moved him to Florida, now New York. But they had, they bought some mares to support him, as most people do, and they had 10, or 10 11, 12 Florida breads every year. You know, and I those stay in Florida, which makes sense. You know, I so I don't didn't have a, let's just say that's four or five more I don't have coming to me. Um, Deerfield Farm used to own a stud, Majestic Harbor, that stood in Indiana, and that was good to give me about four or five Indiana sired horses a year. So basically, in the last couple of years, because of circumstances, uh, you know, that's 20, 25 horses not coming to me every year. And I have a lot of great owners that, that had one and, you know, were one and two horse outfits, but... You know, I was talking to Mike Tomlinson, an older trainer here in Kentucky, and, you know, we were discussing, you know, you need your one or two big people that, that, that are good for, you know, supplying you with a, a decent number of horses a year, and then you have the other one and two horse outfits mixed in. But just doing it with one and two horse outfits is is really, really hard, you know. Um, so that's basically where I was uh, training racetrack-wise and the things that happened that caused that. And... It just uh, when this job became available, you know, it's a it's a good paying job. It's a job that still allows me to be um, involved in horse racing. You know, trying to help uh, the men and women horse women of Indiana. Uh, so it, it it just seemed to all work out perfect. I'm sure that's something you're very passionate about. You, of course, are an Indiana bred. Um, you attended Indiana University, so you're you're through and through a Hoosier uh, at heart. So I'm sure going to help the horsemen of Indiana is something that you're very passionate about. Correct. You know, it, it, it's obviously Kentucky, Louisville here is my adopted home, but, you know, I, I'll always be, you know, I love IU, even though we're seemingly horrible at everything now. <laughs> um, uh, 
you know, the, the joke around, you know, we have a good, a lot of the racetrack people, I would say majority, uh, if they're Indiana Purdue, they're Purdue, you know, because Purdue's more of an agriculture school. Um, so we have fun with the, the, my vets, all the vets, the state vets up there, they were all Purdue graduates. I always used to joke, of course, I can say this because I've had none in 21 years, but I always used to joke with them if we had a, if I ever got a positive test, I was going to say it was a conflict of interest because uh, they went to Purdue and I went to IU, and I'd find an <laughs> IU judge to throw it out. Right. So, uh, um, but, you know, it, it means a lot to me. You know, Indiana's been a big part of my operation. I mean, to be honest with you, not just Bucaro, but um, before then we had Unreachable Star for Deerfield Farm that used to be the you know the highest money earner in Indiana history who was a sired horse. Um, so... It, it 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 basically, to be honest with you, in these last few years, kept me in business. You know what I mean? Because it became harder and harder to compete on the Kentucky circuit. Though until about six months ago, I had horses both places all always. You know, because we had Kentucky breads that were okay that we needed to run in Kentucky for the bigger purses. But um, literally, my bread and butter were the Indiana breads and how well they do, and countless ones that you can't even name that ran through their their conditions and. You know, with those purses going up to forty, forty-two thousand dollars, that made a big difference in the bottom line. You know, what's what's changed over the past few years in Kentucky that's now made it very difficult to win races and compete on a consistent basis? Well, I mean, there's one unwritten thing that I probably shouldn't say, but I will because I'm always very honest. The full crop goes down and down and down every year, and it has for what. 20 years in a row now. Yeah. Um, then a lot of these guys, this is why I hesitate to say it, because a lot of these guys I consider backside friends, Brad, Steve, those guys. But the, you know, there's the, the smaller, let's say 15 horse and smaller stables when there's less access to horses and they have the amounts that they have, it just gets smaller for people. And I don't think anybody can argue that it's smaller. For, it's harder for a smaller stable, you know, um, never take anything away from what those guys do, man. I, I don't know how Steve handles having 350 horses in training and keeps up with all that. That's just an amazing task by itself. You know, same with Brad, obviously they have very good people and I know all the people that work for them. Also I'd consider, you know, racetrack friends, um, but that's part of the problem, and, and, and not not because if, if our full crop numbers were still the same and there were still tons of other horses to be spread to the smaller people, that wouldn't happen. When when I first got started, that was the case. You know, Steve was just as big back then. You know what I mean? Brad wasn't because Brad was getting small and then getting big again. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm just throwing out guys that are on my circuit here. You know what I mean? There, there's obviously, the, you know, Todd and Chad and you know, on the East Coast and Bob and guys like that out, out on the West Coast as well that have, you know, huge stables. Um, but when the full, when the full crop numbers go down and down and down, like I said, when I first started this, that wasn't a problem. There were plenty of horses to go around to all of us. Now, obviously they still had the better ones and we had the claimers, but you know, we, at the end of the day, the claimers are the ones that put on the show every place. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, you know, everybody needed horses that we had, all the racetracks did, you know, um, now with the full numbers down and, and it's just, it's just harder for the smaller people to, and I don't really don't, you know, I, I was asked, believe it or not, in one well, in one of the interviews when I said that that was a problem, you know, going forward, the, the full crop numbers and, you know, smaller guys are sort of pushed by the wayside. But um, 
I don't have an answer to it. You know, I mean, that's one of those questions that you, I, I just don't know how you fix that. You know yeah. what I mean? So I, I, and I don't think you're saying anything out of school in that statement that you just made. I mean, it really does become a numbers game at some point, the people with more numbers and, uh, you know, and the bigger name trainers are going to attract the better horses. And that's just the way it is in this sport. So trying to compete with them head to head is going to be very difficult for any of the smaller operations. And I think you're right about the declining foal crop because all of a sudden there are fewer horses available to be split among the bigger stables and the guys and women that are, are training on a smaller level too, right? hundred percent. That's a hundred percent of what I'm, yeah. what, what I was and then, trying you know, to what, say. What about the, what about the money, Tim, uh, that's in Kentucky now? I mean, the, the purses are so ridiculously good that I think now you're seeing more horses from those bigger stables and you have to try to hook them in races where maybe before you could find a little softer spot for your horses with your smaller operation. Now you can't do it anymore, right? Correct. I was about ready to mention something to that effect. So, yeah. so here's, here's how this works. Um, as a trainer, as a one-time owner, which I did also own a couple, um, and as a person that's getting ready to go represent horsemen, I would never, ever, ever bitch about bigger purses. But there are some negative effects to bigger purses. Um, let's go back. Usually about five, six, seven years ago, you're right, those races were tougher and tougher, and they were about 100 back then, you know, before – they added more money from the from the um, historical racing machines, um, but they had already added some. So, I would still win two or three maiden special weight races a year, and that's a big deal for a stable my size. You know that allowed us to bill for an extra six thousand dollars winning those, one of those races. Mm-hmm. In the last, and there's other things that go into this too. You know, I just haven't had as good of horses. You know what I mean? Um, you, you go through cycles like that. But in the last four or five years, I don't think I've won a maiden special weight race. It, at Churchill, we don't even consider it most of the time. You know, usually we start at maiden 50, you know. Yeah. Um, so to go forward, uh, the way this works is that let's say you have a horse that run, run, just finished second for $20,000, okay? And the $20,000, i am just going to make this up off the top of my head. I don't have a condition book here for Churchill. But let's say the 20000 non-winners of two purses. and it might be a little lower than that, but let's just say. Um, So I'm feeling pretty good when that race comes back in three weeks that I have a really good shot to win it until I see some of the guys in there dropping horses from 50. You know what I mean? And then there went my chance to win the race, and it's going to get claimed, I can promise you, because usually you, you fit. On paper, you fit. It might be the second, third, fourth, fifth choice. You're gone. You know what I mean? And for a smaller stable, that's hard because, remember, everybody says, and it's the free market system. I'm not arguing about it at all. I'm just explaining how it is for for a smaller trainer. The horse goes and gets claimed, and then the the argument to that that most people will give back to you is we just claim another one. Did that. Took a year for me to get one because we were out shook so many times. You know what I mean? For, for, For an owner that lost a horse. It's it's really easy to lose them. It's not really easy to replace them. You know what I mean? Um, so that is is and, and that's that's at Oakland as well with the big purses there. So um, uh, I don't know the percentage. I've never wanted to waste my time doing it, but a vast percentage of that uh, uh, added money to all these big purse races goes to the 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 bigger the bigger stables you know what i mean so but it's good it's still good it creates you know obviously money and and, and economic impact for the state and the the larger the purses get the better there's just some i would say not negative but there's some there's some 
downside to it as well. You know, people yeah. used to joke years and years ago when Dale Baird and some of his family were uh, uh, dominating West Virginia, and then they had those probably 10, 15 years that the purses went way up that one of the people that was really against it was him because they, he knew that the horses would start coming from Kentucky, you know, and running in those races. And that is what happened. Now, obviously in the last 10 years or so Mountaineer or, you know, West Virginia racing has taken a downturn again and the purses have gotten smaller and smaller, but there was a time probably right when I first started for about 10 or 15 years that you, you know, they had, Twenty-five, thirty, four, thirty thousand, $35,000 allowance races at Mountaineer, which if you look at what they're running for now, that was huge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, yeah. it, it, that's a different scale than what we're running for at Churchill, but it's the same concept. Talking with trainer Tim Gleishaw here on Trainer Talk, presented by Fazek Tipton. If you're just joining us, Tim saddled his final career starter Saturday night at Turfway Park. He'll begin a new role on Thursday, February 1st, as the executive director of the Indiana Horsemen's Benevolent and Protective Association. And as an Indiana bred, that is a role he is embracing and really looking forward to trying to help the horsemen in that particular state. Um, I don't want to gloss over something you said earlier, Tim. You kind of told a funny story and joked around a little bit about if you ever did get a positive test, you would have done this and this and this and, and kind of kidding around. But I think that's a really important point to make. You trained horses for two decades. You never had a positive test. How did you navigate those waters so successfully? Well, you know, there's probably two still pending out there, so I guess I, but I'm just going to take for granted that they're going to be good. Yeah. <laughs> they should be. Right. Um, it, we were just really careful and had, we had the same vet practice that did all our work for, for years and, and there were just no mistakes made. Um, you know, that, that doesn't, you know, in my new position, obviously, I represent all people. That doesn't mean that I think that guys that have trained for, you know, 20 years and had five or six, seven positive tests are bad people. I mean, things happen. First of all, accidents happen. Secondly, you know, I would vehemently argue like, like most trainers would about this trace positive stuff for all these different things that no one would even give a horse. You know what I mean? And we, we, we argued with that long before HISA, so I can't blame that on HISA. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, trace positives for methamphetamine. You know, uh, who's going to give the horse methamphetamine? You know what I mean? Obviously, that was on a groom's hand and got, you know, you know, and, and things like that. Um, so there's a lot of positive tests that happen out there uh, that, that, I don't think should be positive tests, but that's a, that's a totally different subject. Mm. And, and in my new position, you know, hopefully I'll have some influence on that though. That would be very, very difficult, but we were just really careful. All the people that I had working for me over the years, um, including my ex-wife and all the assistants that I had working for me. Um, we were just very careful to make sure nothing like that happened. I scratched two or three horses when we found out mistakes were made that I did myself. You know, I mean, I accidentally gave ace about 10 years ago to a horse that I knew was in, in two days and we could have taken the chance and run and hell, I, uh, you know, the horse doesn't hit the board, the horse doesn't win, then you don't. But I called the owner and, you know, told them, look, I messed up. You know, we're going to have to wait until the race comes up again. So um, just things like that. There's no there's no secret to it. And like I said, that doesn't mean that people out there that, that have some, 
you know, and, and, and obviously the number of horses you have and the number of times you go to the test barn increases that. That's what, you know, people could argue about me. I haven't been there very often, though. I used to joke all the time with the people in the test barn at Kentucky. Now the stewards choose who goes to the test barn, you know, as a special when I, you finish last or second or fifth or whatever. And I used to joke that they used to special mine because they knew they it gives them less work to do. Um, <laughs> you know, quite a few yeah. times that I've been specialed and gone over there. Not just me, but there's some other other people as well that we used to joke when because they knew they weren't going to find anything. But um, you know, I'm I'm, I'm very you know. It, 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 I'm very proud of it, but you know there, there are a lot of guys out there that have a few that that are just as clean and just as honest and good as I am. So, you know, people may not realize the entire story surrounding Tim Gleishaw. Tim, you were teaching school in Illinois for a couple of years before you decided that you wanted a career change and you made your way into the thoroughbred industry. If you were teaching a course on on training racehorses and you were working with potential new trainers or aspiring new trainers, what would some of the curriculum be and what are some of the key points as a teacher you would want to make sure that you hit on? That's an excellent question. And that's, that's a very difficult one to answer. Number one, you just have to have perseverance because it definitely is not easy. And the good times definitely outweigh the bad, but I would tell you that probably in number of days, like good days or bad days, there's always going to be something wrong. You know, you're going to come back, your big horse is going to have some filling in his ankle. You're going to come back and one of your horses colic. You know, there's always going to be bad things happen. So you, you just have to really have a level head and have perseverance. I would say that's more important than anything. Um, you know, now, and you also have somebody, have to have somebody that financially backs you. And I'm not talking about an owner, but like some family member or something. Because when I first started, I went to TaylorMade internship program. They didn't pay you much, you know, and I had a car and everything. And and then I went to Hot Walk for Bob Holtus and had to live over in Louisville on a Hot Walker's salary. My parents didn't want me to live on the backside, so... <laughs> You know, they had they had helped me out with that. Um, uh, so someone that's that's able that's there able to to help you is probably really important too. Now that can be an owner. You know, if you, if an owner decides to, to that they want you to train for them, and and they're an owner that's going to help you, which plenty of owners out there do, especially smaller trainers. That's great. Um, you know, but I think definitely just don't let the don't get down. You know what I mean? Uh, it's 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 a, it's a. I will tell you this. Obviously, in my lifetime, I've only been in two businesses. That's teaching school and being a horse trainer. But I have to say that training horses is probably one of the toughest things to do. And it's not the horse. It's the it's dealing with owners. It's dealing with jockeys. It's dealing with getting paid on time. It's dealing with people that don't pay you. It's dealing with employees with problems with other employees. Um now, that's not to, I don't want to make all the teachers mad out there because there is absolutely no way. That's the only thing that I could prob uh, that I'm qualified uh with a degree to go back and do and and there is no way that I could go back and do that nowadays with what they have to deal with. So, there's plenty of tough jobs out there. But um it's just not it's not not all glamour like, you know, you people watch on TVG, they watch on you know, Fox Sports, America at the races, and they they see the big races and see the people all happy and everything. There's a lot, a ton of work that goes into that before that happens. And, and there's a ton of people out there that work just as hard as I ever did 
that never get to that point that, you know, just win climbing races at, at, at Belterra Park, you know, and that's just as important in our game as those horses are and, and the accomplishment those people have made. You know, I got very, very lucky to not have grown up in this business and had some of the success that we had and gone some of the places throughout the America and, you know, to England and Canada um, because of my horses, I never would have never would have been able to make those kind of t- trips and 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 had those experiences had I not uh, been a trainer and been been lucky. You have to have lots of luck. So, what's the one thing, Tim, that you learned in twenty years of training horses that that you're glad that you learned? It was it was a tough lesson to learn, but you're glad that you went through it and and made the changes to your operation, whatever the case might be, and then. What's the one thing that you always did well from day number one that you're very proud of that you did it that way? Well, probably the number one thing I'm proud of is I'm very, very organized uh, uh, horse-wise. You know what I mean? Like uh, all my dates I have, you know, the, the, so the the big one of the big complaints about HISA was the portal that we have to post stuff on all the time when this is done, when that's done. And I totally understand that trainers don't want to uh, – uh, you know, quasi-government agency and having all those records and that kind of stuff. But as for the actual doing that stuff, that's like right up my alley because that was no problem at all because I have all those records. And in fact, as soon as we do something, I just put it in. Um, So just my organization, I was always very, very, very organized. Um, You know, to be honest with you, even when I learned a ton from Bob Holtis and I learned a a lot from Cole. We had cheaper horses at Cole's, so I learned a lot more about claimers at Cole Norman's. But I learned stuff every day. You know, I mean, there's still questions that I was asking the vet in my final week of training. Hmm. So, um, but my organization's probably what's best. And not to sound repetitive, but the thing that I probably learned the most was. Uh, what we already discussed in, in something that you need to is something that I would teach is you have to just have perseverance because the, the, there's going to be lots of bad times and, you know, I don't want to go into them on here, but you have to sort of be a cheerleader for your help too. The day after we lost uh Buller's alley, that was obviously my grade one and grade three winner, uh, you know, broke a hind leg at Keeneland, you know, the barn was, was pretty sad that next morning, but, you know, I had to convince all our people that, look, we have still have 25 other horses here that need to be taken care of, and they're no less or more important than, than Bullard's Alley was. And, you know, we those horses deserve us to take care of them. So there's lots of hats you wear as a trainer. So anyway. Yeah, it's multi-layered. It's not as simple as just showing up and sending a horse out for a workout in the morning and then bringing them over in the afternoon, you know, a week later or something and saddling them and showing up in the winter circle. There's a lot of other things go into it, including the business side of it, Tim. And you talked about working with owners, but there's the, the financial side of it too, all the billing and everything like that, that a trainer and, and their team have to worry about too. That's one thing I probably changed. I'll tell you the truth in my 20 years, 20 plus years, I did all of that myself to save money. And mm-hmm. it's probably not worth it. You should probably pay somebody to do it. <laughs> it, it, it Less number learned. one, number one, if if a if if a if a you know outside company makes a mistake, it it ever. I'm I'm not saying my owners, my owners were great. Almost all of them I've had throughout the years. 
if there was a mistake on their bill, they know I do the billing. They know it was a mistake. I wasn't trying to cheat somebody out of, you know, like, let's say a horse left my barn on the 15th and, and I had put down the 18th. They'd just call me and tell me, hey, you billed me for three extra days. Oh, shoot. shoot. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but that's an outside person doing that. <laughs> There's a little layer of, <laughs> well, it wasn't me. They must have made a mistake, you know? And it was just the, the time that it took when we were up at one point to 50, 53 horses. I mean, it was like a two-day deal for me to do it. Of course, my computer skills aren't the best. You know, I use the hunt and peck method and everything else. I'm sure it would be a little bit faster, but just taking all your training chart and then, you know, writing down all when they ran and the percentage that you got off when they finished first, second, and third. There's a lot, you know, a horse runs a couple, two, three times a month. You have to bill for the pony to post. There's a lot of things like that, 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 that just was a nightmare. So I'm talking with trainer Tim Gleishaw here on Trainer Talk, presented by Phasic Tipton. Tim, stay with me. I have to get to a short commercial break. When we come back, we'll continue to talk about your career. We'll look ahead to the next chapter, and we'll talk about some of those tremendous horses that you've had the opportunity to be around in your two decades of training. That's next. It is Trainer Talk, presented by Phasic Tipton, right here on the Horse Racing Radio Network. Basic Tipton Digital presents the Lothenbach Dispersal of Horses of Racing Age, offering more than 75 horses of racing age from Lothenbach Stables, a leading national stable that produced more than $30 million in earnings and over 800 wins since the year 2000, including a large selection of Kentucky and Minnesota breads from one of North America's top owners. The Lothenbach Dispersal of Horses of Racing Age, online only. Bidding opens on digital.phasictipton.com January 29th and closes February 2nd. Let's get digital. It's time to get ready for the 2024 Thoroughbred season at Woodbine Racetrack, the number one turf track in North America. Season runs from April to December with over 62 million in purses with an industry-leading stakes program including two Canadian classics. The Grade 1 Million Dollar Rico Woodbine Mile and the Million Dollar King's Plate. Woodbine offers top safety rated racing and training services plus world-class facilities. Make Woodbine your home turf this season. Learn more at woodbine.com. There are plenty of thrills at Gulfstream Park with live thoroughbred action Friday through Sunday and simulcasting seven days a week. Join us on track for weekend stakes races and make plans for opening day of the championship meet on Friday, December 1st. Dine trackside in 10 Palms with an elevated view of the track and grab a cool cocktail in the Carousel Club. For reservations, tickets, and more, head to GulfstreamPark.com. Well, Fazig's family, basically. Some of the guys that work here I've known for 30 years. I just felt really supported and they're, they're great communicators. They try to help in whatever you do. Fazig Tipton has a sale for every market, every segment in the industry. There's multiple opportunities where you're gonna have plenty of good buying and selling situations. Great customer service. I'm not only a buyer with them, but I'm a seller, and I've always been well taken care of. There's a lot of different things that sometimes you need at a sale, and Fazek Tipton is there every step of the way. They show year after year that they're ethical, and they're fair, and they enjoy what they do. But when you're around people that have a combination of all those things, you know, you can't lose. 
This is Trainer Talk, presented by Facing Tipton on the Horse Racing Radio Network. Bullard's Alley stole a march on them. Bullard's Alley's five in front. Oscar nominated in second, then erupt. Idaho making ground, and they have inside the final furlong. No hope of catching Bullard's Alley. Bullard's Alley has just dominated the Patterson Canadian International, and Waltz is in. Scores by nine lengths. Coming to the eighth pole, Buchero is second by three. Mongolian Saturday is in third. And then comes Hoagie fourth on the far outside. Buchero striding forward for the lead. We'll have to fend off Mongolian Saturday and Hoagie. Buchero in deep stretch. Fernando de la Cruz. Buchero 26 to 1 upset in the Woodford presented by Keeneland Select. Welcome back to Trainer Talk, presented by Fasig Tipton. Mike Penna with you, as always, on this edition of the program, visiting with trainer Tim Gleishaw, who trained both of those horses you just heard. Bullard's Alley, a winner of the Patterson Canadian International in 2017. That was Robert Geller with the call. Kurt Becker had the call of the Woodford in 2017 as well. And Buchero, so impressive that day. What a What a time it was. A great time in his career for Tim Gleishaw. That career came to an end on Saturday evening at Turfway Park. He will now move on to the executive director role of the Indiana HBPA. He talked a little bit about that in the first half of the program. If you missed any of the show so far, all you have to do is head back to our website, horseracingradio.net. You can listen to the entire program after we finish up in about another 30 minutes or so. You'll be able to listen to the full show on our website, and you can do that on every podcast platform as well. Don't forget, too, to follow us on social media, at HRRN on Twitter, Horse Racing Radio Network on Facebook, Instagram, and on YouTube. Well, Tim, those two calls had to put a smile on your face, I'd imagine. Well, yes. Uh, so <laughs> those happened all within a week of each other as well. Yeah. So um, that was pretty amazing. So we went from, you know, running a couple horses in spots that we knew we were taking big chances, just, you know, seeing what we could do kind of thing to two horses ending up in the 2017 Breeders' Cup. So, yeah, that was a, it was a really big deal with, uh, with Bucaro. We had tried the year before in, in the Woodford, we actually ran in it three years in a row and he finished dead last, went to the lead and stopped. And, uh, then we decided after he had had some more decent turf performances that, sitting right off the pace was the way to go. And, and that's really what got him to the Breeders' Cup twice. And that was a somewhat of a shock. We knew he would run well that day. Um, and actually, both of his Woodford victories, um, I forget the sire, but the first year it was a Greg Foley horse that was on the lead. And the second year, I forgot who trained the horse, but they were both by the same sire. Both of them went to the lead, and we ran both of them down. So it sort of set up perfect for us. And uh, second year, I think he was only like three, three and a half to one. Um, so it was a big surprise the first year. And then a week later to go to Canada and be 42 to one. And and uh, to be fair to everyone out there, um, Bullard absolutely loved a soggy soaking turf course and that's what he won his uh, i believe uh, the stake at churchill was a soggy turf course the grade three and uh then obviously that day it was just a complete bog up there if you look at the sprint or the the three-quarter time i believe it was 17 and change and and he just loved that and that's part of the reason he won by one so easy and by so many so 
but that would definitely that that was probably the best week by far of my training career. It's great we can get an assist from Mother Nature on those days, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, if he's an allowance horse or if he's a main special weight horse, he never gets that opportunity because those races are off. You know, these are graded stakes, and they do everything they can to keep them on. And uh, you know, we're just we were just lucky that you know. That happened to him in two of his two of his graded stakes. Though I will say, you know, he ran a huge like 117 buyer, I think it was in that that race up at Woodbine, um, and you know that was because of the track. But then he came back in the Breeders' Cup and finished sixth, I believe, out of 13. I think there was one scratch in the Breeders' Cup for turf formula and dollar race, and ran a 105 buyer. So and that was his highest ever on a dry turf course. So it's not like he embarrassed himself. What were the attributes that made both Bucero and Bullard's Alley such good racehorses? Bullard would just Bullard was just a, a warrior. He, he he and people um, um, Joe Krucek and some of the people at Churchill used to say he'd run through a brick wall for you, which was true. Um, he just he just wanted to run. Uh, Totally two different types of horses, obviously. You know, Bullard excelled when we could get him finally at a longer distance, and I believe he finished fifth the first time we ran him in the the $150,000 stake down at Sam Houston, but he ran like a 98 buyer, and we knew that was going to be the key to getting him to be eight 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 level of racehorse that we wanted to be um, uh, because he needed to run those those classic distances he needed a mile and a half he also finished second at two miles at Gulfstream one year uh and i believe the mcknight stake maybe that i don't know i might be telling you wrong but um what the name of the stake but there's a two mile stake down there that he finished second into one of mike maker's horses i think mm-hmm. he was giving him like 12 pounds in the race it was a handicap um anyway bucaro is a lot more athletic um, he's more of a sprinting type, though he won at all distances. He won in the Indiana bread races twice at a mile and a 16th. And he also won on, uh, uh, dirt turf. And then he got moved. Uh, he was second, uh, uh, Prescott when we ran him at a stake. So he was much more versatile, um, and much more of, of an athletic specimen to look at as well. Um, and I think that he's passing a lot of that on in his, in, in his stud career now. Um, one thing that I'll say, you know, the, the, if you want to quote about each of them, I would say the one Joe, the, 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 um, you know, analyst here at Churchill said that he'd run through a brick wall for you is probably the best quote to fit Bullard and, um, Bucero just wants to run. He, he just doesn't want anybody to beat him. And he was that way. And, in, and in, in every race we ran him and obviously we've, we had sometimes many times we got beat and we were running against higher level competition, but the second year, uh, he didn't make any starts in Indiana. Not that, you know, I've, I've explained to you how important Indiana and the Indiana program is to me, but we had decided that he was a, you know, national turf sprinter. And if you want to try to get back to the Breeders' Cup, we have to run in races all over the country that are turf sprints. So, yeah. What do you remember about that Breeders' Cup experience at Del Mar in 2017? It was absolutely wonderful. Um, you know, I made the mistake of, because I can be cheap sometimes, uh, it just took me and the exercise rider, and I took care of the two horses myself. If I had that to do over again, I would have taken the groom. So Because I did plenty of interviews being a new person at the Breeders' Cup and, and you know, uh, uh, did interviews, you know, looking like with 
horse crap on me and everything else because <laughs> I've been taking care of horses, you know, and they come up to the barn and want to do an interview and you do it. Um, anyway, but I, I always love, liked when we went on stake trips, I, when Bullard won the graded stakes, uh, graded stake up at, at Woodbine, I, I just took care of them myself too. And we just found people to run them. I, I, till the end enjoyed actually taking care of horses and none that I never minded doing any of that stuff. And, um, really that's it yeah yeah i you know just to to get a, and i say this all the time on the program but it's so true tim just to get a horse to the starting gate is a massive accomplishment to to get a horse two horses to the breeders cup in the same season how do you put into words what what you were able to accomplish that year it was just very very special like i said it was the best week and 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 you know you go on to those were both in October, both of those stakes, the one at Keeneland for Bucara and the one at uh for with Bullard at, at Woodbine. So you say take a thirty day period and that included the Breeders' Cup in it too. It was probably, you know, definitely the most special time that I've that I've had. And and, and people won't don't remember, um some do, obviously me, the owner, people that are close to me. Uh Bucara really, really, really finished a close fourth in that 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 sprint yes. out there and, yeah. um, you know, gotten a little trouble, um, going with our usual theory of, you know, letting the speed go, we let the speed go and no fault of Fernando's just gotten a little trouble and didn't have a way out. And, uh, you know, both of the Peter Miller horses had free run on the outside and ran by. I, I truly believe, of course, I'm biased that had we gotten a little room that we very well could have won that race. What goes through your mind when I say the name Reddy's rocket? hundred percent warrior. He probably was no more than 15 hands tall. Um, I have a picture, uh, back when Cody Autry was training, he had a horse oddly enough named little tree who was probably about 17 one and Reddy's rocket beat him on the inside at Keeneland. And you can't see any of Reddy's rocket, but his nose, you know, because he was that much smaller than the other horse. He probably had to take two strides to everybody else's one, but, uh, Calvin rode him on nine out of his 10, or excuse me, 10 out of his 11 wins at Churchill, which Bango, a very nice horse of, uh, of Greg Foley's tied him for the, the record and number of wins at Churchill Downs. And obviously someday that'll get past either Bango will do it if he continues to run or someone will, but it was just nice to hold a record. And he's a, he's like an every person horse. So everybody knows your big horses. They come up to you and, 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 you know, say, Hey, I used to love watching Bucaro run. I had that happen a couple of times, uh, the Saturday night at Turfway. Uh, some people come up and with Buller's Alley, but the people at the racetrack when we were running really, really, really appreciated. And, and it was, it really also enjoyed Reddy's Rocket. It was really enjoyable because um, if you don't know Calvin back when he was riding in his heyday, he would get just excited for winning five, you know, starter allowance five thousand dollar horses. He did when he won the Derby, and and I'm not kidding you. Yeah, Hooting he would. and hollering when he comes back, and you know, it's it's like sort of like um, beating the game. You know what I mean? I think that was you know he 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 thinks that he 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 took it like that he outrode all those other people. And uh, excuse me, Ruddy's Rocket was a little bit different. He he'd have his nose in the V of the starting gate. And as soon as the bell would ring, he would be two in front. 
Um, so the field was running to catch up with him. And when they caught up, Calvin would just hold him, hold him, hold him. And when they caught up with him, he'd open up on him again. And usually that was it. There were the, you know, he lost two or three races at Churchill too. It's not like he won every race he was in at Churchill, but definitely by far his favorite track. He, he didn't win very many other, very many other places for us. Uh, I, I very rarely run a horse back in short rest and, got a little greedy one time and, and he had just won a starter five at Ellis. And there was a one going a mile coming up at, uh, at, uh, Ellis park. So we put him in over there and he won the race, but Calvin came back and said, don't you ever do that to this little horse again? I said, <laughs> Oh yes, sir. <laughs> Understood. Yeah. When the hall of fame jockey tells you that you, you tend to listen and ready's rocket. So brilliant. You mentioned his affinity for Churchill downs. You talked about the record. It was 11 races at Churchill downs that he won from 2008 to 2012. And you said it was a record until bango came back and, and uh, equaled that record earlier this season, or, or I guess it was last year, right? When he, when he finally equaled the record. Is that right? I believe so. Yes. Yeah. I remember I can gradually call it texted, Travis, uh, Greg's son, who's his assistant, and congratulated him. And we've always gotten along really well, the Foley's and I, all the Foley's. So, you know, if anybody breaks it, I'd like it to be him. So, yeah, it's, it's a great sentiment. Bucaro, Bullard's Alley, Reddy's Rocket, just some of the horses that I'm sure have touched you um, over the years, Tim. Tell me about some of the others that you're never going to forget. Well, definitely unreachable star. He's he was an Indianapolis Iron Horse that was owned by Deerfield, and and since we have some time here, and this isn't a very short sh- show, I'll uh, I'll tell you a little story. Yeah. Um, they had a a sire at one time, Naaman Lucent, who I believe, if I memory serves me correct, is a long time ago, stood in, over in Illinois, and he died. Um, so they went up to a. Uh, a lady named Crystal, who who actually bred Unreachable Star. Um, they went up there to find an unloosened filly because they wanted to have something that he had produced. So they went up there with the intentions uh, to Crystal Chapel's place to buy a, fil- a, a yearling filly just because it was by Unloosens, who they used to own as a stud. Um, so when they were up there, she kept trying to sell them this gelding and he, they said, no, 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 we were just here for the unloosened, just here for the unloosened. And I guess uh, the lady also bred, she's a vet, she also bred some corgis, and um, uh, they were running around, and she said, those are for sale too. And, and so she tried one more time when they were loading up the filly. Um, will, you, will you just take this horse? You know, I want a good owner to have it because she gets breeders' awards from it. A lot of people in Indiana do that. You know, if they can't sell it, they want it to go to a good trainer, good owner, so that they can make their money back on breeders' awards. And so the lady said that she'd throw in one of the corgis and the the other horse for free. And Unreachable Star was the other horse that was for free. And he ended up making 780000 I believe, yeah. something like that. Seven eighty four three times. Um, so he was the, that, that got us known regionally. I'd say in Indiana, Kentucky, everybody knew him. Uh, we used to call him star man. I used to lay on him in the stall. One of the coolest horses used to take peppermints out of my mouth, um, out of, from my lips and not bite you. He's just a really cool and still alive. Um, doing little bit of work, doing, going over jumps and stuff and not, not big jumps, mind you. Um, but uh, that would be one of them, and also a horse, also a Deerfield horse named Grand Traverse. He uh, won the Bonapal, 
uh, turf stake down at the fairgrounds, and he made over a half million as well. Um, had a really nice horse uh, for uh, some gentlemen from Southern Illinois, Clovertown Partners, um, Tap Town. He, it was actually the first time I had been to the Breeders' Cup, uh, Santa Anita, a couple years earlier, and uh, we ended up getting vet scratched. Didn't 100% agree with, but, you know, I thought he was fine. But that was the first horse I had in Breeders' Cup, but he didn't participate because he got scratched. Sure. Um, those are all very nice horses over the years that that I've had, and there's countless others. There's 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 horses that we've had that have only made $50,000, but you just remember because of funny things they do. And, you know, uh, uh, one of the ones that won Saturday night, Leo's Roar, he's, he's, he's has his own little attitude, and he's – you know, very, very fun to be around and always wants to play. And um, Lieutenant Kitty's sort of the opposite. She just wants to be left alone. And we dropped her off at Deerfield on Saturday night so she can go live out her life. And, and you know, that's probably what she wanted to do, the way she ran a few times. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. She probably was like, why are we coming over here again? <laughs> that um, was your final but, career starter on, on Saturday correct. night, Lieutenant we, Kitty. Correct. And we, uh, you know, you have those too, and it doesn't mean you care for them any less. And some of them just don't have as much talent. Some of them just don't try as hard as you think they should, but you know, you have to treat them all the same. So I know Tim listening to you talk for the past 45 minutes or so here on the program that you're really going to miss this side of the business, even though you're moving on to a new chapter, you're still going to be involved with racing on a different level, but I know you're really going to miss training. I can imagine that it made it even more special on Saturday night to be surrounded by your friends and your family and have everybody there uh, when you were saddling Lieutenant Kitty, your final starter. Uh, Correct. It was very, very special. There were a couple surprises in there. My parents, I knew were coming. They've been, now I couldn't have done any of this without them, um, both my mother and my stepfather. Um, my girlfriend sort of tricked me and ended up showing up, even though she said she had an event to go to in Fort Wayne that she had tickets for for a long time. And her and one of her friends from Indianapolis came down. And then I had a, 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 a kid named Chad that I used to, back when I was in college, I used to coach his baseball teams when I was home during the summer. He flew in from Washington, D.C. And my neighbor from Evansville, his mom, also made the trip over. And I had two owners, uh, or one owner, uh, Aaron Reed, who owned a horse named Bars Vortex, who was by Bacaro. That was my first ever win for a horse that was by Bucaro. This She won two races for us this past Indiana meet. He came down from Indianapolis also. Um, unfortunately, you know, uh, Iron Horse, um, you know, Harlan lives out in California, so it was a b- little bit of an ask for, for him to come. And then uh, Lieutenant Kitty was supposed to be my last start, and we had to scratch her because due to the weather, we didn't want to end up getting stuck in snow on the way back from Turfway a week before. So Lauren's, uh, David and Lauren, her birthday was last weekend, and they had reservations to go to the Pegasus Cup like for her birthday long, long time ago. So, you know, it, it it would have been really, really cool if they could have been there, but I totally understand. And they've done nothing but support me for, you know, like I said, they're the longest owner that I've ever had. I, I had since, since they were for my first pay client, my first pay horse, and obviously the last. 
That is so cool. What a, what a way to bring it all full circle. Uh, visiting with Tim Gleishaw here on Trainer Talk, presented by Fasic Tipton. Tim, what are you going to miss most about training racehorses for a living? Just the excitement when they do well. And to be honest with you, this is going to sound really weird, but just the smell of the barn, the smell of the horses when you're up next to them. The good thing is that, that you know, most of those people, obviously all those people up at Indiana know me. I'm friendly with with a, a high percentage of them. And like I was joking with one of them the other day when when people were wishing me, you know, good luck in my new job and that I'm going to miss the horses, I said, I can just walk outside the office and walk over to somebody's barn if I need to, you know, if I need to go pet on a horse. Mm-hmm. So um, that's good. You know, I mean, it's I'm still going to be around. I think earlier in the last segment we discussed about how I wouldn't want to go back and, and teach school. It would be really hard. This is sort of a a godsend that this job became available. and I'm still going to be able to stay in an industry that I've worked in for between training and being an assistant over 30 years, the last 30 years of my life, and still get to be involved in it instead of trying to go do something new. Uh, I wouldn't make a very good Walmart greeter, believe me. (laughs) So what are some of the, the biggest things that you would, or most pressing things you would like to accomplish as the executive director of the Indiana HBPA? Well, to be 100% honest with you, I'm stepping into a job that is currently for the next and he's, he's by, by the way, Brian Elmore has that position now, and he's staying on to basically train me until the meet starts. So I'm okay. very thankful for that. But he's done an absolutely wonderful job. I, I really just hope to continue what he's done. He he got the track uh, in negotiation with Caesars to be open, you know, no stall rent for 10 years for training in the winter. You know, they're tra- they train up there in the winter like we do here with no stall rent. Um, the purses up there have, have always been decent for a regional program, and, the, and, and, you know, hopefully they'll stay like that. Though we do have our HISA assessment to come out of purses this year, and, and that's, a, that's a problem for a lot of tracks. Um, so we're going to have that to deal with. Um, I don't know that, that, that anything needs to be better. Obviously, you know, everybody wants things to be better. We just, if we can keep things the way they are and the way that he's gotten things up there, we have a lot of support in the legislature for for horse racing and, and the economic impact it has in the state of Indiana. And we, you know, that's part of our job is to to lobby or remind those legislators how what an economic impact it has in the state of Indiana. I believe it's like two billion dollars. Um, that's a big deal. You know, that's a lot of people that it affects, not just trainers and owners at the racetrack. Um, obviously, I'll, I'll have to ne- uh, negotiate and, and, and be in negotiations and with the Indiana Racing Commission about certain things, the rule changes, things like that. I've always gotten well along with them because I'm never getting any trouble, so that shouldn't be a problem. Um, know all the people that work at the racetrack at Caesars, Eric Hallstrom, the general manager, um, uh, Trent McIntosh, who's oversees the whole place, and then uh, the racing secretary, Chris Polson. I've always gotten along well with all of them, and I'll have to deal with them with, with plenty of issues, too. So um, just really hope to continue what, what Brian's built up there. Tim, just a couple of minutes left here in the program, and I, I love to ask trainers this question when I wrap up the show. Uh, it, I've asked it many times that the answers are always so different, but if I were to walk in to your house and I were to look at Tim Gleishaw's collection of memorabilia from his training career. What, 
what are some of the things that I might see? Jesus, that's all you'd see. <laughs> Over all my walls in my living room or wind pictures, obviously on, uh, uh, many of the horses we've already discussed, Bucaro, uh, Bullard's Alley, Unreachable Star, Grand Traverse, every stake race I've ever won is in a 16 by whatever the size those big pictures are up on the walls, and there's not enough room for some of them anymore. Um, uh, uh, I'll tell you something that's that's really special that, that will make sense to some horse trainers that have been through it. Um, Fasic Tipton, your sponsor, uh, one of the ladies there, and I forget her name and I apologize, um, when Bullard died, when it had to be put down in, in the race at Keeneland, uh, she sent me a really, really, really nice note and a, a picture. He was on the, 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 the cover for the next year's Phasic Tipton sale of being a grade one winner and sent me a condition book and some other pictures that were taken of him, you know, when, uh, when uh, TaylorMade was selling him during the sale and when we bid on him, that was, that's pretty special. Um, wow. Uh, obviously my paraphernalia from, from, from uh, England when we went over to run at Royal Ascot, and it was a once in a lifetime experience. Uh, I believe me, I have tons and tons and tons of stuff. And, you know, obviously none of that, you know, like I mentioned earlier, a lot, a lot of this traveling around America never, had never been to Philadelphia, went to Philadelphia, saw the Liberty Bell, never been to Europe. Uh, Harlan was kind enough to, to make our trip two days before Bucaro actually got over there so that we, he could take me to London and show me around London. He had, he's been, over there many times on business. Um, so, uh, you know, had been to Toronto before, believe it or not, uh, but, uh, never to the racetrack. So, but there's lots of, lots of places, um, um, that just, I don't know, it, it'll just be, be weird not, not being there very often. Obviously I have my trainer's license here in Kentucky and I joked with the people at the test barn at a uh, Saturday night at, uh, uh, Turfway that I'm, I'm st- still going to be home on the weekends and I'll still stop in over there to harass them. So, um, you know, it, it, it's going to be different, definitely different. It was really different not waking up early today, like I told you, but I, <laughs> I think that it's, uh, I'm blessed for everything that's, that's happened. You know, like I said earlier, not to reiterate, but, but it definitely is for somebody that didn't grow up in Lexington, Kentucky, this has been quite a ride, you know, never could have expected half the things that happened and just thankful that they all did. And very thankful where I'm ending up in a, in a job where I think I can help Indiana horsemen and horsewomen and, and, uh, continue, continue on in the business. Tim, about a minute and a half left in the program. I'll end it this way. Um, trainers don't have a lot of free time. It is 24-7, 365 days a year. What things are you looking forward to doing now in your new role, maybe that you're going to have a little more free time? What other hobbies or interests do you enjoy? Um, <laughs> I love sports. The only thing out of the coaching thing that I uh, – the, the teaching thing that I miss was coaching. I coached basketball and soccer huge huge football fan as well unfortunately i like the cowboys and they never make it to this time of year but um just love sports probably watch more sports you know you don't get to watch very things very often when you have horses running on the weekends right i mean the number of times the last two years i've watched iu basketball on my fox sports on my phone in the parking lot at turfway park is uh you know get to enjoy watching sports obviously spend you know, more time because of the, 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 the race times up in Indiana, there are many times I get back to my girlfriend's house up in Indianapolis at, 
you know, nine o'clock at night if you were in a later race up at Indiana when we don't start until two, two, two ten, two fifteen, you know. Um, now it's gonna be more of a much more of a normal schedule. It's gonna take some getting used to, but there's gonna be a lot more a lot more downtime and and you know it's gonna definitely take some getting used to, but I think I'll I'll definitely get used to that part. I hope you enjoy every minute, Tim, and it's been really fun to watch your career and see some of those big-name horses we talked about. All the best going forward in this new role, and we'll look forward to seeing the next chapter of trainer Tim Gleishaw. Appreciate the visit here today. All right. Thank you very much for having me on. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Tim Gleishaw here on Trainer Talk presented by Phasing Tipton. If you missed any portion of the show, check out the podcast on our website and on every podcast platform. I'm Mike Penna. Thanks for listening to this edition of Trainer Talk presented by Phasic Tipton.